Thanks for joining us once again on Replacement Level Morality. My name is Joseph. My name is Andrew. I don't know if you saw the news lately, but I certainly heard the clarion battle clock cry of the libertarians when I did. That is the masterpiece cake shop guy. Remember him? Yeah. The, the I, dude they wanted to, you know, bake the cake that he didn't want to bake because had some that objected to him morally and his religious beliefs. Remember that? Bake the cake, bigot. That guy. Yes. Bake the cake, bigot. Uh, he uh, He's getting dragged back into high court again by the same person that sued him for the gay cake is trying to make him make a trans cake. And he said no to that. Now he has to go. I, I assume he's probably got some outside support at this point for for the cases he's finding himself in. After all these years, I know that he wrote a book about the stuff, so I'm going to assume his lawyer expenses are probably secured. But at the same time, it's a lot of time, effort and energy that he's putting into having to defend his right to not do something. And I thought that might be something you, the card carrying libertarian and between the two of us might have something to say about it. So fun fact, I I at one point did purchase a membership just so that I could be a literal card carrying member. I have the card in my wallet. <laughs> that was, was like the, the Libertarian reason. Party of Ohio. I don't, is there one? There is one. Oh, uh, it was the National Party. Oh, but I got my membership and then I let it lapse just so that I could be a literal card carrying member. So that's correct. Yeah, yeah. I believe I said on the on the podcast account, leave Jack Phillips alone. That's that's basically the sentiment. Are you familiar with the idea of negative rights and positive rights? I think I'm in passing familiar, but remind me. So a negative right is a right, fr- a freedom from something. Okay, freedom yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. from being coerced to do X, Y, Z. Whereas a positive right would be, uh, I have a right to healthcare in Canada or the UK, uh, a right to something else that will be given to me through law or social security in the U S given the two words, positive is generally a good thing and negative is generally a bad thing. Most people are like, Oh, I'm in favor of positive rights. The only right that is the key right in a free society is the right to be left alone. That, And this is important because one, freedom is good. Just going to say that because we're Americans. We believe that. Whether- Absolutely. And we've proven its efficacy, by the way. Very important, I think. But two, when... When you have the right, the unambiguous right to be left alone, then you don't have to work at social engineering in order to make sure that interactions are positive some. What does that mean? That means well, that- I think I think we do. I mean, if 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 I may interpret what you said, right? If you let people not have to interact with macro social elements that they find objectionable if they if you permit them to avoid the things that they don't like then you don't have to use manipulative tactics to convince everyone to just get along or to massage them all into the same belief structure and that's 
it's way easier to just allow people to opt out of things they don't want to be involved in rather than try and fucking brainwash everyone. Yes, but also just opting into things as well. We opted to create a podcast together because we thought it was better than the alternative. I opt to go to Chick-fil-A. No, no bureaucrat has to spend any energy on how many bits of bread have to go to which place because I can opt to go to a place and the place can opt to supply me bread. And it, when it's all voluntary, you know that everyone has benefited except in the case of externalities, which economics has a lot to say about. And I'm a fan of Pagoo in those ways. But for the most part, when you let people just choose to interact or not interact, they'll make benefit they'll make decisions that benefit each other purely voluntarily right especially when you provide them with all of the tools that permit them to do so at a minimum of time and personal investment i mean it is bizarre sometimes to consider how effortlessly here in the United States and these massive cities that have grown to enormous size within one human generation, right? From, you know, one human lifespan, a hundred years, urbanization has launched uh, exponentially. The population of this country is vastly more than it used to be. There's lots of people living in concentrated areas and there is almost no crime between them. There's 300,000 people living in the city we, we, we are in right now. 300,000 human beings. They are not killing each other. There's 20-some million in the greater New York area. If you gave, like, bureaucrat Sim 1000, like, hey, feed this city of 20 million people with trucks coming in, delivering food places, they'd laugh at you and tell you it's impossible. And not only is it possible, it's like redundant and actually pretty easy once you've trained yourself to figure out how to do it. It is something you can create a whole skill set around. And humans are great like that. It's fantastic. We're very good problem solvers as a species, uh, particularly ones that allow us to further our our expansion as a species. Uh, All of that said, though, we're a a bunch of monsters. We're, we're all, we all be very unkind, uh, particularly when there's anything resembling a, a resource uh, shortage uh, that could be uh, uh, around. Yet somehow we're making this work. It's a little weird. We got, we have, we have plenty of resources. It's something like 4,000 calories per person. Hunger is not a problem of not enough stuff. It's a problem of logistics and responsibility and so how does this relate to jack phillips joseph let's take us back a little bit yeah well we did meander a little bit on that but it was a fun it was a fun meandering the core issue to me i'm not as libertarian as you i'm not anywhere close i i do believe in a certain level of appropriate wielding of state power even not necessarily with the consent of the governed i'm more illiberal than you but at the same time, I'm firmly on the side of the the uh, the libertarians, even the card-holding ones such as yourself, when it comes to your 
freedom to not have to interact with psychosocial or religious things that you don't want to. And particularly because you have your own set of religious beliefs that are closely held and it would conflict with. Yeah. And I think that's where some of the Jack Phillips conversation gets lost where it becomes about religious rights per se and not associational rights generally. But that's what I think is more important with this case is he's being denied his right to be ignored and, and to ignore things that he doesn't want to engage with, which is critically important. It's how we can like my neighbors have a wonderful, glorious American mix of, we believe in this house, we believe signs and my neighborhood has a glorious mix of in this house, we believe signs and BLM signs and support the cops and all sorts of like mixed messages across the spectrums. Right. Got it. They're neighbors. I don't know if they're nice to each other or not, but as long as we stay within our walls, not hurting anyone else. We do all our arguing on the internet anyway. It's fine. Jack Phillips is within quite literally his own walls, even if it's a business. And he has these people coming to him and people will talk about how he it's a custom cake and he offered them a non-custom cake. And that is different. And it is different. It, it goes to the malice of the people that are trying to get him to bake this cake that they couldn't just take one of the stock ones. They they tried to get him to do artistic expression yes. that he didn't want to do. Yeah. But I'm fully on board with if he just didn't want to sell them a cake because he didn't like the color of their hair. The whole point of we let people choose to interact is for whatever reason – we know that it's positive. We know that it's positive. Some. We know that there are utils being generated by the transaction. It's not one person gains, one person loses. We we've um, discussed before you and I that uh, we um, see differently some of the elements of the right of someone to discriminate if they so want to, as in terms of the the kind of the uber libertarian position that the 1968 civil rights act was is unconstitutional or it shouldn't be law. And I take the position in that conversation of saying, actually we, it's in our interest of our country to enforce a level of restriction on your ability to not do business with something to exclude oneself from the social situation. And, and, that some impossible to separate characteristics need to be protected so that there's a certain equity under the arrangement of uh, free market capitalism in the United States can function evenly for everybody. Because otherwise, without these restrictions, it just would not, even if it does somewhat violate what we'd otherwise hold sacrosanct in terms of your right, freedom of, of association. With even with the fact that I come from the position that these restrictions are necessary, there's a pretty big difference between 
having to enforce that on say race grounds because we have an, a, a, a indelibly mixed racial population in the United States and everyone just needs to be able to access all points of business equally if everyone is going to be able to actually have access to the free market economy equally. And a tiny fraction of a tiny fraction of a, dare I say, um, degenerate uh, part of a psychosocial identity uh, demanding that someone else labor on their behalf in a specific way that he and his moral worldview deeply objects to. I mean, th- there's just a, there's a fucking red sea of distance between these two positions. And the idea to me that somehow a should permit B to occur is absolutely mystifying to me. So libertarians get asked about the 68 civil rights law a lot. And I think it's important to disentangle two different aspects of it. The first was preventing states from enshrining discrimination into state law. Jim Crow was largely maintained through state effort. A lot of the businesses, they didn't, they just want people's money. They didn't care. Or at least on the margin, some of them would have, and then those will tend to outcompete the discriminatory businesses. The Rosa Parks was protesting a law, not a practice of what the bus company was doing. Fine with the federal government getting involved there under the equal protection clause, just making sure that states can't discriminate on the basis of race or hair color. Um, That's totally fine. Also, I have a little bit of sympathy for very strict public accommodations law, where if there's exactly one supermarket and a totally replaceable commodity, I prefer it to be a city-level ordinance, but I don't mind having, like, if, if there is literally nowhere else to go, Maybe there's a role for the law, but in the in, in the most place, especially today, like, can you imagine if some business had a no blacks allowed sign and in Ancapistan, this is allowed, how quickly the internet would destroy that place? Oh, certainly. <laughs> yeah. Google I mean, reviews would be, would be fun. Like it would, it would just, it would, there'd be picket lines outside of it and I think it was de Tocqueville wrote that this was a a element of the American sense of your right of free speech and free expression extends as far as your willingness to endure the uh, stigma of exclusion from the rest of society. That's really the limit. You know, it's you can say whatever you want, but you really can only say as much as you can afford to stand by everyone else hating you for what you said. Yeah. I need to read more de Tocqueville. It's a good book. It's very, I mean, the language is a little archaic and of course French, uh, but uh, it's still it's very French, readable. Unfortunately, there's a touch on the French side. Um, the haughty arrogance of the continental is uh, thick uh, throughout it. We'll say that. Uh, it's not that he's not sometimes very complimentary, but it's complimentary in the way that one is observing a lower life form is the way I would describe it. His perspective. <laughs> That's an amazing <laughs> description. Yes. 
there was another case recently where basic associational rights came into conflict with the popular zeitgeist. Uh, There was a, I don't remember if it was a law passed or an executive order signed, but Mike DeWine signed it where uh, it gave the, it gave doctors the explicit right to opt out of treating trans patients. And Reddit had a very predictable Reddit reaction of, this is horrible. This is uh, legalized bigotry. This is uh, your religious rights superseding their right to get treatment. First of all, given the correlation of education with attitudes towards trans people, the amount of doctors who are like truly like anti-trans total bigots is vanishingly small. But imagine that such a doctor existed. He thinks all trans people should be immediately executed. Just like the maximalist position. Exactly. Why would you want that person to be treating trans people? To compel them to give medical care to the people that they hate instead of just letting them opt out. The... I mean, that's a good kind of auxiliary element to the story is that the freedom not to be involved is only going to continue to be a question, which is why I think that sooner rather than later, you're going to start to see more definitive weighings in of the Supreme Court to put an end to it. Because up, up, up till now, it's been a novelty question. You know, it's like a kind of real niche wasn't something that at most people would face over the course of their day, but you're going to get into circumstances and soon where I think normies are going to bump up against some kind of weird political moment or shibboleth they have to follow or a piece of this new cultural lexicon that they have to swear fealty to that is going to discomfort them. And when that happens, that this is going to be the only question on people's minds. Like I, they're going to refuse. Right. So the, the Supreme court needs to weigh in on this and put an end to this now so that it can just be the, the politics can shift around this. Like we need to firmly establish yet. Yes. You do have the right as another basis of a moral objection to reject. So psychosocial, uh, perspectives, sexualities, sex habits that you find disgusting for whatever reason. You're allowed to do that and no one can compel you to accept it. And there, the Supreme Court's ducking of the question in the original Masterpiece Cape. We're going to be soon calling this Masterpiece Cape, Sh- Cape Shop. Uh, we're going to soon call this Masterpiece Cape Shop. One more time. <laughs> are you are you saying that this is going to be Masterpiece Cake Shop 2, Electric Boogaloo? Uh, I, I'm saying that I, there's a joke about a time traveler going back to uh, 1925 and finding out that he's in 1925 and saying, oh, after the First World War. And people look at him like, what do you mean the first? <laughs> We're heading towards Masterpiece Cake Shop the second.
there is a case that they heard back in December uh, from Colorado about a web designer. Arlene's flowers. I I feel like that one's going to be very constrained to artistic expression. Yes. um, Which is, you know, it's one, one piece of the puzzle to get to where you need to get to. But this masterpiece cake shop thing, um, because of the, of the nature of the suit just seems like it's going to be finally the one where they say, yep, you're allowed to just not give you the gay cake. He's allowed to say no. How well, we, a lot like, of people don't. We keep trying to tell you that this is the answer so that maybe you'd be cool and back off so that we didn't have to actually say this. I mean, that was their attitude last time, right? It was if you guys stop fucking up and stop pursuing this as an avenue, maybe no one will do it, right? Like that was the message to Colorado. It's like you decided to pick this fight. You decided to be hostile to his religious beliefs on purpose. What is wrong with you? You shouldn't have done that. Don't be involved in this. Yeah, it was giving them an out. It was like, yeah. hey, if we rule on this, you're really not going to like the precedent. So we're going to find this narrow thing. We're going to find that you acted so hostile towards him and his, his religion specifically we can just rule there on First Amendment rounds without getting any further into general associational rights when religion is implicated because there is no constitutional right to free association. And, and we'll have the justices on the right lay it out on their opinions. They'll just be right there in fucking front of you to say, we totally are going to rule in his favor if you make us pull this trigger. Like, the, it's all there. They're prepared. We only got here because you decided to pick a fight that we could find other grounds to rule in favor of him. And they just would, they, they got, they left, but the stoop, that smarmy fucking lawyer that initiated the first one decided, nah, I'm not done. I'm going to still, I'm going to fight this battle to the end and took it on themselves. And here we are. And to borrow a phrase, uh, the cruelty is the point. Yeah. And it's like, if it wasn't so cartoonishly intended to torture this man at this point, it would be funny, right? Like you, you, you did this again because I don't know why you've got all this money to afford all these lawyers. I don't know who's paying for this. I don't know who's doing this on the, the side of the complaint complainant, but it's, it's going to horrifically backfire here in probably the next what? 12 months. Yeah. And thank God it needs to happen. It needs to happen before, the culture tries to make a move on the the normie America. They won't know it. Well, they won't understand what's going on. You know, like this is this is, <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna look upon this with abject horror. So, so what do you mean by that? The the culture starts to move on normie America because, like, we've talked personally about certain aspects of corporate trainings. Is that is that what you're talking about? Yeah, in a way. Like the the content of some corporate trainings that you know I've I've seen, um, it was no surprise to me as someone who's spends a, a sufficient amount of time being aware of the world and and the direction these kinds of things were moving in and the kind of messages they were including in them, and I felt therefore secure in objecting to it and knowing exactly how to object to it and why to articulate why I was objecting to it, such that I was no longer going to be exposed to it. But at the same time, um, there's a lot of people who don't have that defense mechanism. Uh, this is, in fact, why a lot of the working class blacks and Hispanics are are 
moving towards the GOP is because they've seen what the white liberals have offered. And I say white liberals, but that's not quite right. Because I went to college around the time that this was being developed. There were plenty of non-white people espousing these ideas. It was less racial than goes into higher education and then seeks out classes that take classes about justice issues as the university sees it. Right. People who have been primed. Yeah. People have, the, 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 the field has been tilled and <laughs> it has been prepared for the seed. Now I get what you're saying. It's an it's, idea so stupid that only a very educated person could believe it. Like you That's, said, the, the, the working class minority populations are seeing what the, as you said, the, the liberal white upper class, educated upper class and their, their compatriots amongst all of the other racial groups, right? Cause it's more of a class thing. And, and, and they're saying, uh, that's horrifying. We don't want to be part of that. <laughs> like that's, that's kind of disgusting. And, and we're with you guys that, that that's not okay. We can't do that. The reactions every time it's kind of brushed into the real world. It has not survived for that reason. Like the Leah Thomas, Harvard swim thing. I knew about that story for so long that I was surprised to find out how many people didn't know about it once it was on ESPN. Right. Like it hit the news where normal people see it. And there was a very large reaction to it. And it was all very negative. And you did not hear about any of this stuff again because of it. The head of the NCAA was fired like six weeks after that without notice. And they didn't say why. But we all knew why. It's because he let that happen. He permitted it to occur. He didn't stop it once he saw it was going to happen. He let it get to ESPN. He got it, it, he allowed it to hit where all the normies are that have a lot of the capital that are in the the you know the donation funds for these schools that make up the, this organization that he's the president of. They saw it. They didn't like it. They didn't like that their kid that's going to go to Brown might not win an NCAA championship because some guy decided he's a girl now. That's not, like, they saw that and said, that's not happening. Or even, like, California, in California, like, the decision to try to unban racial discrimination so that they could be, have, like, high school level affirmative action, just even in California, that got laughed out of the issue box. There was a, I mean, wasn't the coalition that Got rid of Chesa Boudin in San Francisco. Basically, uh, the the Asian population standing with the not far left parts of the city and voting like 70-30 to get rid of them. Like all, all of you crazy white liberals are right here, right? That's you. You're the 30%. You've got a ton of money and here you are. The rest of us are f- over this guy. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was quite the coalition that came out to smoke him out of power. And it was it was the crazy white liberals with their wackadoodle beliefs for the, the ones that were left holding the bag trying to make Chess and Boudin happen. And there's a lot like especially around Asians. The way the animosity that the the wokes have towards them. It's just like 
you just want Republicans to be like 20% less crazy. So it wasn't embarrassing to be like, yeah, I voted for that when they like talk to their parents. It, it's it's a very strange realignment that we're going through and all of these moments are interspersed. It can be, it can be a uh, masterpiece cake shop too. This time it's personal. Um, you know, it can be the, the inevitable conflicts that are going to occur over these ideological flashpoints. If they actually continue to penetrate past the sort of safe spaces that they're presently in with the folks they've already ideologically captured. I resent you reminding me that that Jaws movie exists. Just say no. This time, this time it's personal. Yeah, was, I actually was, never, I never watched three. any Jaws sequels. Just watch Jaws. The one with the roaring shark. That's all I know. Never saw a single frame, as far as I'm aware, of any Jaws movie aside from Jaws, literal Jaws. So I, I didn't believe that roaring shark was a real thing. So I watched like that part of that Jaws movie that had the subtitle, this time it's personal. And it was just as bad as it sounds. The the shark roars? The shark roars. Because vocal cords work like that. All right. Well, if you can segue this into our second topic, I will buy you a beer. Or I will buy you a drink because you're not much of a beer drinker. Not much of a beer drinker. But one thing that I do enjoy enjoy drinking uh, raw uh, is maple syrup from our friends in Canada. And in Canada are a number of resources <laughs> that America could make use of. And you and I have discussed in the past as a thought experiment in regards to our positions on the concept of real politique, uh, why it is Canada is not something the United States has just taken over. You owe me a drink. Nope. Because you went from a drink, not from what we were discussing. <laughs> no, I count it. I count no. it. I count it. All right. Uh, listeners, I will put up a poll on Twitter <laughs> as to whether that counts as a segue or not. Um, we have fun here. Replacement level morality. Maybe too so, much. <laughs> <laughs> so to do some level setting, realism is – the diplomacy, the board game theory of global politics. It is all those things that you think matter, the whether or not there's ideological alignment, whether or not two groups of people happen to like each other, are basically irrelevant to a global board game where people compete for power, influence, spheres of influence, geopolitical resources, territory, all that good stuff. Where think of billiards. That one person does this, it will ricochet off this ball in this way. That's that's foreign policy realism in a nutshell. We're just we're just all playing a board game. If there's this move, there will be this counter move. Well, and it, it it assumes all players of the game are attempting to win. Yes, I mean that that's a key part of it. Is that no one is going to sacrifice the self interest of their own citizens, um, for some other higher, um, cause or or thought 
that ultimately everyone is playing to win because that is what your people want you to do. <laughs> That's how you stay in power. So I have this enduring question for realists of why have, why has the U S not conquered Canada? Which may sound like an odd question, but consider Julius Caesar won great fame for conquering and subduing Gaul, partially because something like 500 years prior, the Gauls had sacked Rome, and Romans had not forgotten that grudge. They ha- they very good at holding grudges. Very good. The best. The best grudges. The U.S. has invaded Canada twice in the past 250 years. More than two invasions, but invaded them in two different wars. We invaded them in the Revolutionary War. That was less about conquest and more about, you know, trying to weaken British positions and take some of their ports. We also invaded them in the War of 1812, and that was a, a big boy invasion, if you will. We meant to conquer Canada. It was kind of a, a, a thorn in America's side that Canada was still there. I don't remember. I think it was still explicitly British territory at the time. It was. But we tried to conquer it. We failed very miserably. It was kind of an embarrassment all around. Multiple times. The War of 1812 was definitely our mulligan <laughs> on the <laughs> world stage. We're like, all right. Uh, well, well, you've got this one. Best of three. <laughs> like, <laughs> So we should have, and it's important to recognize that the elites of the time wanted it for its strategic resources. They wanted it because they thought it was embarrassing for the United States of America to not control that land. So there's this drive that's not that old in historical terms to conquer Canada. And then we just go a bunch of centuries Without trying, despite a huge disparity in power, even before World War II. We're just so much more powerful than Canada, it's not even close. A realist, we're we're just here to get power and resources. We're playing to win, as you say. Uh, It would basically be free to annex it, get a few more states, get some more territory, get a lot of oil if we're in an age when... Oil is a thing we're looking for. Get maple syrup, as you said earlier. So, realist. Why did that never happen? Because your definition of conquer is not expansive enough. We did conquer Canada. Canada's basically a a bunch of cities huddled up against the American border for warmth. And then long stretches of wheat farms or tundra between them. Canada's biggest uh, trading partner is not itself. It's the United States of America. It trades more with us than it does within its own interstate borders. Province, interprovincial borders. Good word. Five point word. It is outsourced all of its defense to us. We benefit from all of their natural resources. They are literally sold to us at a discount because they don't have to pay very much for transportation. 
we've conquered Canada. What's left to conquer? We control their airspace whenever we want to or need to. We, we, we have sole ownership of all of their resources that they're pulling out of the ground at a cheaper cost than it would cost us if they were in our country. Their population is our cultural satellite. When they had protests in their country at their government, we allowed it to continue up to the point where it blocked a, a bridge that made it so that we were shipping car parts between each other. And at that point, our president calls their prime minister and says, get those motherfuckers off that bridge and you do it right now. And he did. You know why? Because we conquered Canada. That's not what you answered last time. That's a much better answer. I gotta say. <laughs> have I have I won you over? Have I, have I finally have I finally hooked the the realist claws in deep? So here's why I'm not a realist. Which it's, okay. it's not why haven't we conquered Canada? Although I'm less proud of that question than I than I was twenty ten minutes ago. <laughs> I wash you into my dojo. <laughs> like, I'm so ready to give him an answer. Two democracies going to war is substantially less likely than any other governance structure. Not because of any abstract value alignment, but because, as we saw with Putin's recent invasion of Ukraine, it's hard to get a democracy to go to war because the cannon fodder can vote. Not hard per se, not that it can't happen, but it is a higher barrier than a particular person's will. Very true. When the cannon fodder gets a say, that does limit the scope of the conflicts that will erupt. And this is why, just to speak as a realist, the form of conquest took on something other than boots on the ground moving across an arbitrary line on the map. Instead, the United States conquered the entirety of the globe by essentially using the untold bounty of North America and our untouched huge expanse of land on which to do unimaginable spreading and utilize of just pure space to be able to have whatever industry and and urban footprint we could possibly want to underwrite everyone else's existence such that they will accept this underwriting and their lives will be made better for it as long as they all agree to this, the, to the terms of service. They check that little box that says, we own all of your ass. Like, all of your profits basically come to us to underwrite our existences. We're going to live like fucking kings of the universe. And they bought into it because it was better than anything else they had in front of them. Oh, especially for countries with serious security threats. Yeah. Israel, Poland, Taiwan. Like, oh. Would you rather be poor and be eating borscht? I mean, that's <laughs> this is this is what the other side is offering you. Do you really want that? You'll be richer with us, even if you're making us richer than you. Isn't that still okay? <laughs> I, we are pro win-win on replacement level morality. Yeah, and it was. We offered the globe a win-win. It was a 70% for us, 30% for them win. 
but we all made a profit here. And I don't even know if that's the case. I mean, we do kind of fund everyone else's defense. It's a lot. When I think about the global deal that we receive in financial markets to underwrite our unbelievable level of expense, I think that it's a fine price to pay (laughs) to be the ones in charge of global security. I still wish Europe paid their 2%. I mean, they should. It is embarrassing, though, that we would only ask them to do 2%, though. That's, I guess, my point is 2% was less than the minimum, you know? 2% was not actually trying that. It was like, have enough guys so that it looks like you're helping a little bit is what 2% is. (laughs) At least pretend. Yeah, like, 2% is at least pretend. 4% would be getting you close to doing enough to defend yourself. 6% would be really committing to the bit, right? We used to be at six. We've actually fallen closer to four, you know, and I, I think that that actually is going to be a big global change. I think you're yeah, going to but falling more- closer to four is our economy. Ha- our economy grew a bunch. Whereas that, our total that means- defense spending has grown, but not as much. It hasn't grown by the level <laughs> our GDP has grown. Um, but I, we also stopped, we, it's not that the, we haven't kept spending money. It's that we did get a little bit more focused on how the defense industry spent money. I mean, we weren't maintaining huge stockpiles of equipment that were probably no longer necessary, but instead investing a lot of money in having fewer extremely potent and high-tech systems, which probably is correct but is also has it produces a different effect when it comes to the ability of you to project a certain quantity of force. Yeah, we got very focused on counterterrorism weapons, counterinsurgency weapons. Yeah. That are not necessarily as useful against peers or near peers. You, you ever heard of Peter Zihan? The yeah. Uh, yeah, he has a he had this great line when he was on Joe Rogan about how we went from thinking about what kind of tanks our opponents would be using in 2040 and designing our tank to beat that tank to uh, there's a guy in a building like this one in Fallujah and there's a door on his right and I need to know on what side the hinges are so that my guys who are going to burst in there know exactly where to set the charge to blow the door in this way so that we have a clear shot at the guy behind him. Like, incredible kind of skill to develop, but also so hyper-focused on these micro questions that now you need to scale up your traditional war fighting ability. And that had kind of atrophied over the course of the last 20 years. A lot of those guys don't work there anymore. They've been replaced by guys who are trained to do something else. And they've got to kind of relearn things. The, the global instability that has come as a consequence of Russia throwing its weight around, I think woke everyone up to the reality that history is not actually ended. Sorry, Francis. <laughs> and they may have to defend themselves. Now it turns out defending yourself is a lot easier than you thought. It may be two and a half to 3% of your GDP is enough because technology has made it. So the, the, the level of force you can lay out, against a a potential invader on your doorstep is going to be enough to stymie them at that level of of expense as long as it's done and projected in an efficient fashion. Well, it's also because our our particular adversaries are so weak. 
So I listen to a lot of the Goodfellas podcast. Weak to us. Weak not to Latvia. And that's what I'm talking about. Sure. But like they, they talk a lot about how we're in Cold War II and I think that's fine. But the Soviet Union was a pure competitor. China is not. China is growing and a serious competitor, but it's still a few fries short of a happy meal when it comes to trying to compete with the U.S. I also think they're about to hit a lot of trouble. Demographically. I think demographically is going to spell trouble everywhere else. They mortgaged their entire economic future on this wacky uh, building these empty cities thing, remember? Like, they have all these people invested for these homes that are going to be built. There's this whole middle class that they tried to to jumpstart into existence by setting up these state companies that essentially uh, can't deliver what was promised. Well, the Soviet Union did the same thing with whales, where they didn't actually need whales anymore. They just kept hunting whales because the line had – you can't report less than the previous year's number. So China did that with buildings where it's like, how many buildings did we build this week, comrade? Mm-hmm. Uh, one more than the previous period. Oh, okay. Were those buildings needed or useful? No. Yeah. And they're going to start tearing down these empty cities that they build. It's insane. And um, the collapsing demographic circumstance is going to play out in such a way that they're not going to have enough people to, I, I don't, again, this is Peter Zion, you know, thing that he brought up was, there's going, to, there's going to be not enough fuel to employ in the same way that they presently can because this population bubble that's going to transition out of being able to work in the heavy industry things that they are profiting from and are going to be replaced by a smaller amount of one child policy era kids that there's not only less of them, but they're also less likely to have children. And they're all males. Oh, yeah. And it's mostly men. So... You know, the, the, like that's going to be a lot for them to deal with. That's probably going to prevent them from rising much higher. And their even their naval um, power is not really all that impressive. Uh, they've got a couple holdovers from forty and fifty years ago in terms of design of aircraft carriers, basically built to 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 pantomime having you know a combined arms uh, ability. I wouldn't. I would say that even the the French are probably far more capable militarily than China is in terms of projecting their force. Like France can go fuck around in Africa, you know, whenever <laughs> whatever it is that they feel like it and do. Um, and I think China would struggle to have overseas deploy adversarial deployments of their army. I don't think they've figured it out yet. Well, Famously, one their, of their invasion plan of Taiwan is like everyone get on a boat and go. Like they don't. They just expect to lose tons of dudes. One of the like things that people will say to scare you about the rise of China is they're soon to have a blue water Navy. It's like, talk about damning with faint praise. <laughs> they might have, you know, who already has a blue water Navy? Japan. France. <laughs> like, it's always like, it, Every once in a while, I'll be like looking at different countries' naval strengths and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. France is an aircraft carrier. I always forget that. People also forget that they are very involved in their former colonies, like very involved. Uh, You never hear about their deployments, but 
They they have a very professional active part of their military. And they've, they've not let go in the way that other colonial powers have let go. Um, that, and, sounds, that sounds like very replacement level morality. <laughs> would you like to, would you like to take a crack at explaining that phrase? So remind me, what were we talking about when it came up? When you said the phrase replacement level morality, because it was something you coined. Yeah, it was just a, something I said without thinking it was different. And you're like, yes, that's a very. Yes, that's a very Andrew phrase. I'm like, oh, I guess. But so we were talking about Julius Caesar, and my position is that he is a historical villain, right? And he's he, a historical hero, yeah. And the argument went something like, he brought down the Republic. That's a bad thing. Uh, he was on a quest for personal glory to become a king of a city that didn't have a king. It was unique in that it didn't have a king, and it had this whole culture of six emperor tyrannus that was noble and he brought an end to that uh you said well anyone in his place would have done the same thing i said yes that is not being a hero that's just replacement level morality there's nothing heroic or noble about it it's just what someone else what a replacement level person would do and we think that not only is that just a neat phrase to name a podcast if there ever was one, but it does convey the tenor of the conversations that we tend to have in that we often remove, if possible, the moral dimension to the dynamics that we are looking at. I mean, we we basically did that with our earlier conversation in regards to uh, the Masterpiece Cake Shop, freedom of association, freedom to opt out conversation, where we talked about these things in stark terms when it comes to the personal freedoms that people are supposed to have, uh, particularly in their rights to not be involved with people. And you know what? That's some, that's the way you have to talk about these things. Otherwise they're impossible to talk about what in particularly to disagree about, which is something missing in a lot of the civic conversation that we see online, which the people have forgotten that they have to be able to permit disagreement uh, and not like it, not enjoy it, but know that it's part of the conversation. And that as long as they, you stay in your house at the end of the day and I stay in mine, I don't care what you believe. So that brings us full circle. How about that? We're back to your, your, your story about your, your, your neighbor and their signs. Good it's almost as good and as my transition to the second topic. That was terrible. That They're was good amazing. neighbors in that I haven't met them yet. <laughs> but it's winter. I'm sure I'll meet them when, when the weather warms up. Well, thanks for listening to Replacement Level Morality, and we'll see you later. Bye.